0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today, I'm talking to Troy Hunt, the person behind Have I Been Pawned, the website that lets people check if their email address is involved in any recent or ancient data leaks. Troy is a security expert, and we'll talk about how founders can build a secure business, what parts they can build themselves and which they should outsource, and how to make absolutely sure that your own customers are safe. Here's Troy. Troy, you're an expert in cybersecurity. You're teaching people relentlessly, too, and just to stay secure and be aware of security topics and not to fall for malicious actors. I've checked your, um, your YouTube channel, too, and you have a couple of cool videos just exposing scammers and that kind of stuff. I have to know, did you do any due diligence on me before accepting this call? Because how does a cybersecurity expert deal with podcast interview invitations like this?
1: Oh, it's easy. You just say yes and then work it out <laughs> later on. Uh, look, um, you know, for, for things like, like podcasts, uh, I think the only due diligence I do, just because there's a lot of requests, is is just to make sure they're not like a completely random person and they do actually have a, a an audience or something that. That's not to say I, I don't say, you know, no to people starting out, but um, – yeah there are a lot of requests (laughs) lately
0: i bet yeah i I know the feeling i have similar avalanches of people who want to do stuff and that's nice right it's nice to be in a position where you can teach people the things that you know that's kind of why i wanted to talk to you today i i think security is something that everybody should be extremely aware of but particularly for entrepreneurs solo founders indie hackers that the field um, that I'm very active in, this seems to take a backseat most of the time. Like people are so busy on building an MVP, like just kind of gluing stuff together and like throwing it out there. And then some of them have success and then the thing grows and all of a sudden they are a big target. So I kind of would like to talk to you about how founders can improve both their personal security and the security in their software projects today. What do you see most often hit in terms of like security situations in software as a service businesses what's the one thing that founders get wrong in that field
1: it's uh, you know i don't think there's just just one thing but it's it's so often it is the basics time and time again and whether it's uh small startups or large multinationals it is reused credentials lack of multi-factor authentication unsecured databases uh, yeah, we're talking at a time here where we've just had two massive, massive incidents in Australia that have just completely reset the, the compass on how we deal with cybersecurity. One of them was insecure direct object references, it's, it's, a, it's a URL with a number and you change the number and you get something else. And then the other one uh, for a major uh, private healthcare insurer uh, was reused, actually I don't want to say reused credentials, we don't know, they, they say compromised credentials, so we can only assume that that might have been it. And yeah these are enormously devastating tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage on each of these incidents and it 's the same thing that that we have as founders and I think the one thing that 's common whether you 're a large organization or a small one, is you still got people there writing software you know we're we 're fallible humans, we make mistakes and uh, we just we just seem to make the same mistakes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I
0: guess like it kind of extends from the, the personal sphere of making your own mistakes into making business mistakes. It's kind of one of the things that I see a lot is that it's solo solopreneurs really building their own thing and then mm. they're kind the family is also involved like uh, their partners maybe doing the books, like keeping the books or like a, a friend or a family member is helping them out. Like, those are also kind of, you know, potential attack vectors. What would you suggest for people to help secure their family or their their extended operations? even though that's a solo business, right? What, what could they do to make their business safer by teaching the people around them?
1: Well, I mean, my, my wife and I are a good example. So she does uh, uh, all of the... She basically does everything that she possibly can on, say, <laughs> so have I been fine. So it, it, like, it is all the books and the accounting and the... Uh, she does a lot of support tickets and things like that. So it, it's a combination of things for us. And whether you're sort of a small business or a family, or in our case, I guess both, uh, it, it's the same sort of things. Uh, yeah, We use a password manager with the family's account. We share things uh, between ourselves. Every password is strong and unique. The multi factor authentication on everything. Uh, yeah, all the mechanical things that we keep talking to people about and then uh, just, just a lot of the, I, I guess, awareness things like, gee, that email looks a little bit fishy. You know, maybe, uh, maybe you should really think carefully before following that through. Um, and, and I'd, I, you know, this sounds obvious to a lot of people because they're like, I'm sure I've heard this before. So, yeah, but we don't do a very good job of it yet, which is why we keep repeating it. Yeah, I, I don't think we're at the point of saying we've fixed all of that, let's start to do the really, really high-tech, you're super sophisticated stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but one, one thing that I found
0: um, that in particularly in founders who are building their own software, like from the ground up using maybe kind of some bootstrapping skeleton system or whatever, but people love to build their own authentication system. And I have mm. tried to convince people not to build their own authentication systems, like using like email capture, password, building their own password resets, all that kind of stuff. People don't listen to me, but maybe they will listen to you. Could you please <laughs> give, give me a good <laughs> argument that I could give founders who love building software not to build their own authentication?
1: So I started writing about. Uh, Infosec about 13 years ago and, and back then the, the message was always don't roll your own and there was a bunch of uh, authentication frameworks built into products like .NET or whatever your favorite software development platform is. Like It's, it's built in and it's not just authentication, it's session management, as everything else is built in. And over the course of time since then, we've now got better authentication providers, we've got lots of OAuth providers, we've got so many different services out there to do all this for you. And I love the idea of not being, I actually love the idea of delegating a, as many things away as you, you possibly can. Now, th- this has some other issues I'm sure we'll come back to, but yeah, authentication is just one of those things that is such a massive target. It's so easy to get wrong, and it's also so easy to go and procure from somewhere else. L- like get rid, of, get rid of the responsibility. <laughs> go and focus on the things that you do well and, and delegate the, the rest of it away. Uh, and, you know, that's not just authentication, but how many different libraries and things we pull into our, our software development projects these days? You know, how many people, geez, I mean, look at even some, remember LeftPad, you know, there's literally libraries to do things like add padding. It's, if, if you're going to go and get someone else to write the code for that, then definitely get them to write the code for the hard bits.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, the whole JavaScript library ecosystem seems to be so convoluted and also easily attackable. Like just NPM. Just recently added the forced 2FA to. Um, account owners for certain packages that have more than a couple million downloads a month, right? Like they they are very specific in what they enforce and what they don't enforce because the ecosystem is just developed in a way where most people don't have two-factor authentication, even though they have packages that are part of other packages that are part of other packages and so on. right? And then there's this whole system of very hard to introspect uh, libraries that people use. Is there a kind of framework that you would suggest for people to um, like how to approach libraries if they have to use them in their in their software?
1: Well, I don't know that we ever have to, but we always do, you know, <laughs> that's really the, the first thing. It's it's hard to imagine starting a project today and writing every single line of code yourself. And if it's not a package and it's an external service, and they're, I guess, same but different, right? Uh, yeah, the, the, the canonical guidance that's been out there for many years is that you need a mechanism for keeping packages up to date. Um, now, yeah, if it's a package management uh, product like NuGet or, or NPM, well, you can go through and see when your libraries are out of date. And, of course, we've got the likes of controls within continuous integration environments, which will let you know many times if a package is out of date or if there's a vulnerability. And the, the, the thing that sort of keeps coming back to me, and it was something that I, I struggled a lot to get my previous employer to to pay attention to is like when you build software it it is like having a child you've now created something that is a dependency that needs fear and watering and love and care and and part of that is going through and and looking at those packages and making sure that they're uh, that they are up to date because we've seen so many occasions in the past I mean we're we're still in recent memory of log4j right (laughs) like there's have seen so many different cases where there has been a vulnerability because someone else is writing code they make mistakes too so how are you going to be on top of that uh, and it 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 does create this ongoing dependency on you to maintain your dependencies so it's something that we can
0: never like really outsource because i'm thinking if we outsource our authentication to a trusted partner could that be something that we actually outsource to another trusted partner like library update management as a service has has that ever been tried have you seen this
1: well, in, in a way, you're just sort of going more towards a SaaS model, aren't you? you? You know, like if if you remember that as we started getting cloud, you know, a decade, decade and a half ago, and there are all those, all those charts that would be like, you know, uh, traditional on premise, and then there's infrastructure as a service and platform as a service, and then the you know the, the eventually we evolve to like software as a service, and and the further along we go, the less responsibility we have for managing things at 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 higher levels Uh, you know i think there's probably not many of us these days that actually look after physical servers but it might be that we look after the framework or we go to the next level and we just look after our own software product or we just go into the ui and configure things you know i'm for some reason i've got my stripe dashboard open here yeah i i write very little code to do with anything with credit cards I was delegate all that away so i think that's more the direction we're, we're heading uh you you know the whole idea of just automatically updating libraries sometimes we can get away with that but yeah sometimes libraries change in breaking ways i mean stripe's a good example the the api revs uh and if you want to use a new version of the api it might break your old things so unless you want to really delegate away all of the the the, the code work you're still left with having to do something yourself
0: yeah sounds like In particular, Stripe is a great example of people who are implementing APIs in a way that is actually useful to developers because they version them well. And they have these kind of translation layers between versions of the API, right? If you kind of you can translate it back and forth, and it kind of still works, but the libraries implementing these those might break, right? You have these layers on layers. It's just man, I remember that from from building my my most recent software as a service project, and it was horrible. It was horrible to deal with an upgrade because not only had did you have to deal with the actual API, like at, on Stripe that changed, but all these weird layers that now my my Stripe client library needed an update, but that required another package to be updated that interfered with something in my on my database layer. It was bizarre. And that was Elixir in the backend, right? A uh, community that is kind of trying to be on top of these kind of things, but it's not the biggest community. It's not a JavaScript community or the .NET community. Smaller, so people take a longer time to update their libraries, their packages. It was horrible to deal with this. Like It was, it was a couple of weeks of, of frustrating... Uh, updating attempts, version tests up and down, and kind of felt like this should not be the energy that I expend on my business trying to get this weird API implemented into my system. But I guess that's just, you know, complexity of software there.
1: It is. And for something like Stripe, if you break it, you can't get money, (laughs) you know, which is kind of important. Yeah, it kind of sounds like,
0: what is it? Like payment and authentication are the two things that I always tell people not to build yourself and for payment, it's obvious. Like you are not a bank. You are not a PCI compatible business, right? You don't have the certification for that. But for some reason, people think authentication is fine because they have, they use a library they saw somewhere, (laughs) which is another problem. Mm. Or it it, it feels so weird that when money is in there, nobody, nobody has any problem using another product like Stripe. But when it comes to private information, like an email or a password that you hopefully don't reuse, but probably will, you know, particularly if you deal with the B2C environment with r- regular people using regular passwords that they have and not using password managers. Uh, that's unfortunate, but also even, true. Even me,
1: then... Right? It- you know there's degrees if you take stripe it's like okay so you delegate your payments away well there's a lot of different ways of implementing stripe you can do it all at the api level in which case you've got to write a lot of code and you've got to deal with things like item potency you know they've got some controls built into that but you've still got to consider what happens if someone like reloads the page uh and and that's a lot of what i did originally with stripe several years ago now and it's only been in very recent months I mean, well hang on a second like they they have a customer portal they have an embedded beddable pricing table uh, y- yes, they're leaving my site. And now they're entering their credit card onto the Stripe site, which effectively they were anyway, but it looked like, have I been pawned? And then there were client async things. But the, the the more I can push away, I deleted so much code. I felt really good. But I think the, the point is, even when we say, let's use a third party service, there's this you know, combination of like handwriting a lot of code and tying together APIs, low code, no code. <laughs> you know, like where do you end up on that spectrum?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least with Stripe, you know that. This company has a lot of good reputation when it comes to security and internal auditing and a a technical team, a response team, incident response teams, like you've Mm. seen Stripe being good at this. But as a solo founder, I remember implementing like dozens of external services, like third party services. And I always had this problem. And I know that many founders have this problem too, that I don't have the power in this kind of relationship to audit their security processes, right? Like if if Microsoft wants to use my thing, they can give me a lot of things, a lot of documents that I need to fill out to be compliant, but I cannot give this to Cloudinary, right? I'm not gonna give them an an audit or or ask for a report. How, how How can I as a founder be sure that the third party service out there is not messing up the data that I sent to them? Is that even possible? No. You know
1: the the flashback that I had is uh, I spent 14 years working for Pfizer, a massive multinational pharmaceuticals, one of the world's largest companies at the time, and we would have this. You know, you go through this process where it's like we want to use some third party service. We're going to have to not audit them, but get them to go through a compliance checklist. It's like, well, really? So yeah, yeah, no, we got to do it so that we know that everything is okay. Well, how do we know? Well because they tick the box <laughs> and you get this point in time representation of whatever their security posture is. Uh, and and that, that's, that felt very counterintuitive because it's like, well, the reason we're using this third-party service is to unburden us of work, but what we're saying is that we don't completely trust them. Now, how much of this was like lawyer ass covering, I don't know. <laughs> you know. Like if something goes wrong, at least they checked the box and said that it wouldn't go wrong. But you do end up in this this situation now, where it's it's not just one or two external parties are dependent on, us, multiple external parties, many external parties. Uh, If you start going through and trying to assess them, not only do I think that that's woefully ineffective for many reasons, uh, but it's also going to now put the the responsibility back on you, which is the very reason you went to them in the first place.
0: Hmm. So how do we balance this? Like, how can we use? Can can we even use those services then if we want them to be responsible?
1: I mean, the things like the Stripe example are, are good, and you just made the point that they've got a great reputation. I, I think the balance is, is that we look at services that that we trust and we feel confidence in the, the way they run, and particularly when they have the, the, the history that someone like Stripe does. Or if I went and used, you know, Okta, for example, for to, to do auth, it's like, yeah, they've got a great reputation. They've got a lot of runs on the board. I know they're well-resourced. I know that they can do the security much better than what, you know, my organisation can, uh, and, and that's a, a reasonable, balanced decision. Now, if, if you're going to delegate your auth to some new startup, well, yeah, maybe that's something that's, that's a little bit riskier. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that this is just one of those case-by-case things. So from the perspective
0: of such a new startup, because I know that you know, indie founders try to build these businesses that then grow to the size where they can have the years of reputation and all the, the many cases where they actually did not get hacked or where they didn't have any leaks, right? That is in the future for many businesses that are just like a couple months old. Mm. How can you reliably be trustworthy and signal trust to uh, to the outside is that is that something that can be
1: done like with a framework of sorts or i mean trust is a a really interesting social concept isn't it i don't really think it's it's a technical concept in in the way you put it is it's like who do you decide can take responsibility for things that that could have a major impact on you uh, you know, think about the different ways we've indicated trust before. Uh, <laughs> at the moment, it's like, do you have a blue check mark on Twitter? Oh, that must mean I can. Oh no, I can- no, that doesn't work anymore. Uh, uh, yeah, we had the padlock icon in the address bar. That means you can trust. Well, actually, it never meant you could trust it. It meant something completely different. But the iconography is something that people associated with with trust. But I think when it comes to external organisations, it, it it is a who might be running services or building products, etc. It's a combination of you know, uh, do they do they have the history? Do they have a proven track record? Do I do I know of the people there? Uh, and, you know, when you mention. Again, speaking about it in the social construct, when, when you mention names like uh, yeah, Apple, I think, is a very trustworthy brand. If you if you pick other organisations, particularly some that might have been in the news for various problems lately, you, know, you go, okay, well, my social view of that is I, I don't have as much trust. But I, I think it's it's a very, very hard thing to prove as, as well. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a good example. Often after a data breach, someone says, this organisation had a data breach. I don't trust them anymore. I'll go, okay, but you're... You, so you're going to trust the ones who haven't had the data breach, but the ones that just have are the ones that are really thinking about security now. And the ones who haven't over here, maybe they've actually got bigger problems. And you you're just looking at this little veneer on the service, on the surface rather, and, and making decisions based on that. It's a very hard thing. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, you can't just have a data breach to then show people that you have to take security seriously, right? That's kind of sounds like that would be a solution to this. But obviously...
1: <laughs> it's it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, obviously, you would hope that uh, any solution out there takes security seriously uh, to the point where they are working actively against data breaches. But I guess the the undetected breach is much more of a problem... Than the detected breach with the efforts of reinstating security in that company. It, that, interesting. Yeah. How mm-hmm. many of you thought about that? Like in, and when I look at companies, I look for signals that they, they have the tech technical know-how to be mindful of security. And kind of look at their, their social profiles, f- try to find engineers at these companies and look mm. into how qualified they are. That's the kind of due diligence that I do on my third-party vendors, just trying to look behind this, the scenes and see if they have engineers that actually are aware of these things. But obviously that's not always possible or, or the case. So I guess we just have to trust the ones that have been around for a while.
1: Yeah. And then who knows? <laughs> I guess it's, yeah. it, yep. it, is, it, it is just, uh, I think it's just that the, the fact of having dependencies on other parties, you know, yep. it's, it's very, very hard to establish that trust. But, uh, you know, what, what you can do is you can, you can have mitigating controls. Uh, you know, I, I might decide how much information I want to give a third party. You know, can I minimise my data footprint? Can I have other controls? I mean, a, a good example is I use things like Discuss on my blog uh and so i am re- i am trusting them to do the commenting engine and everything fine and then not have xss or something in their in their javascript which i embed in my site but a mitigating control for that is i have a content security policy so it only allows uh a, a, an allow list of scripts from an allow list of sources and allow list of fonts from an allow list. you know so we can put these controls in place to It's a little bit like the trust but verify mantra, right? It's like, look, I think you're good. I'm going to go with you guys. I'm just going to put some things in place just in case something goes wrong.
0: Yeah. Do you have any suggestions what kind of suites of tools or what particular tools to use for this? Just like any SaaS founder could implement something any SaaS founder could implement quickly?
1: Well, I think an interesting discussion, is to put it like in a technical context, let, let's go back to the discuss example. Uh, you know, when you embed discuss or when you embed a chatbot or when you embed Stripe, it, you know, very often you are taking someone else's JavaScript and you're putting it on your website. Uh, so that's easy, right? Like that's great because then all their JavaScript does all the work. But think about what can you do with JavaScript? You know, what can a bad person do with JavaScript? well, basically anything. <laughs> you, know, you can redirect to malicious software, you can rewrite the screen, you can read any cookies for the domain, you can do all sorts of nasty things. Uh, so is, is that is that good? Well, you know, we're doing it for all the reasons we just discussed. Now, okay, well, what can we do to, to mitigate the the risk there? Uh, and I'll, I'll give you sort of some very discrete examples. We've seen things like there was a, a service called Browse Aloud, which would allow you to Uh, it's an accessibility tool. You just drop in a piece of JavaScript and you put that on your website and then you get a little accessibility icon and then it can do screen reading and things like this if someone is visually impaired, which is fantastic. Now, they had their script compromised and they had a a crypto miner injected into their script. So the crypto miner then ran on every single website that had embedded this chatbot. Mm -hmm. Since then, they've done two things that make this much better. So they're using sub-resource integrity, which is a mechanism which is able to say this external script dependency, this is the hash of this external script file. Uh, That hash is then stored on the website consuming the service. If ever the script changes, it doesn't match the hash, the script doesn't run. So we've got a way of, of verifying in a technical fashion that we are still getting the same thing that we thought we were when we built the service. Uh, and then they've got content security policies as well. So we can say, look, allowed is allowed or, or rather your website is allowed to embed a script from like BrowseAloud.com. It cannot embed a script from anywhere else. So if someone mm. does manage to somehow compromise that script and get other nasty things in there, well, then it, it won't execute. And And the cool thing about this is that it's like it's free stuff. It's built into the browser. It's been around for years. It works with everything. So we do have technical controls on top of all the sort of social controls we just discussed to, to make sure that that things do only behave in the way that they're meant to.
0: Mm, that reminds me of the whole browser extension situation in the Chrome Web Store, and oh people God, like I yeah. I'm, the the business that I ran had a browser extension, and I um, that was part of the whole interaction with the software we integrated. It was an online teacher like productivity tool that we had, and they had online classrooms, so we integrated into that through a browser extension. And I got, I think, 20 emails by people wanting to buy my browser extension because they really liked yeah. what I was doing. You know, those yeah, kind of things. Gonna do <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're going to inject something in it, right? And is there is there a way for a regular user of a browser like Chrome or Firefox to kind of prevent these things from updating themselves or just taking over? Like, Is there any way to control the browser extensions you have in your browser?
1: So here's a fun story on this, and I'll answer that question in a second, but I was just wanted to find the exact words. So just after this, this podcast, I'm going to go and visit my son's school and talk to the IT department in there about managing devices uh, because they, like basically every school, I don't think they have a good position on parental controls and things. But I'd written a story or a blog post about kids uh, and access to devices. And I gave an example here where my son said, look, a lot of his friends on their Windows PCs are running this browser extension. He would like to run this browser extension. And it's called uh, the Predator tab. Now, this just basically puts like Predator theme on your browser. And I got a screen grab of the permissions it wanted here because this was a teachable moment for him. Now, this extension can read and change all your data on the websites you visit replace the page you see when opening a new tab read and change your browsing history and i'm like why does it need to do this to put like arnold schwarzenegger and the predator like somewhere on your browser this is just nuts why are you doing this now to to your question about sort of disabling things from updating the the, the paradox we then have is we go back to the thing we're just discussing which is software has bugs it needs to be updated it needs to be maintained i like the fact that say on my iPhone, it just automatically updates when there's things and I need to give it an okay for a new version of iOS, but I basically don't think about it and I just take all the changes. Now, the, the problem with this with this browser extension ecosystem is, yeah, if you do have a malicious party come along, in fact, the tweet I embedded directly under this is I said, uh, do you use a popular browser extension? How confident are you that the creator wouldn't accept a $10,000 offer to hand it over only to have it then go rogue on you, which is, which is the problem? So you know the, the the very simple answer to that is take as few browser extensions as you possibly can. Take only the bare minimum things, and then you've got to do the trust thing that we just spoke about before. So if I was to look at my browser extensions, the only one I can remember having, and there's a very very small number, is is for one password. So I trust those guys for all sorts of good reasons. I would not run the Predator browser extension.
0: Right. Yeah. That, that I I completely understand this. Obviously, this is like way out of scope what they need in terms of permissions i have a story from the other side as as a maker of a let's call it genuine browser extension because you know we did that for our business and we wanted to support multiple different online schools so we would have in the beginning for the first version of the browser extension just really um the the allow list of urls on which Mm. the browser extension is allowed to run and then i would i wanted to add a different school but in auto-updating to this new version of the extension, and that was, I think, the web uh, extension f- v2 still, right, at that point, they would disable the browser extension for people because it asked for a new URL to be added to the extension permission list, so people had to reactivate it manually, which was a UX a horrible UX for people using our product. And they got really mad at me, or at the business, I guess, for updating the browser extension to some school that they don't use because they were already using the the prior school uh, which led i have to admit to me asking for blanket permission with the next version so i had a, a blanket permission i just limited the amount of websites on on which it was actually started but it had access to every single um url they would have went to if i wanted to which is probably why i got all these emails I would assume there are people scanning their browser extension repository for blanket permission extensions and just asking to buy them
1: yeah well you've got you've got something valuable now you have got a foothold on a a large number of devices
0: yeah
1: well we sold that
0: business so (laughs) to a legit (laughs) buyer but yeah i i I thought that that was that i felt really uncomfortable doing this for the sake of being able to actually use the extension I felt like the, I wish there would have been an easier way for me to have people agree to this without just blanket disabled. But that was mm-hmm. the problem at this point. So, yeah, so I guess the, the default settings and the way browsers deal with this could be better in, in both ways, right? Both to secure people from the extension and to allow the extension builders to update and improve their extensions at the same time.
1: Yeah, and look, I'm not sure the exact reasons for it, but you, you, you know the likes of, of Google and the Chrome team are very security conscious and very switched on. So I, I mm-hmm. suspect it's just sort of one of those ecosystems which has evolved to what it is for, for, for good reasons, but now, you know, here we are. Yeah,
0: that's right. Let me take a second to tell you about the sponsor of the show. MicroAcquire is a free startup acquisition marketplace that connects founders with serious buyers to help get their online businesses sold quickly and easily. MicroAcquire has been sponsoring my podcast since the beginning, and I'm excited to share their plans to help more bootstrap founders succeed. Starting in 2023, they're rebranding to Acquire.com to show the world that they can help startups of any size get acquired. Their mission is the same to help founders achieve life-changing outcomes and continue building game-changing tools that make acquisitions easy for all. With over 35,000 messages sent between buyers and sellers in any given month, if you're thinking about testing the acquisition waters, now is the time to join Acquire.com. Well, uh, talking about being security conscious, I recently found uh, a lot of your content where you talk about removing or lessening the dependency on passwords. Right? You want to be less dependent on passwords and have alternative ways of authentication. Mm. One of the things that I see in the indie hacker solopreneur space is that people would love to implement things like magic links or web authentication, you know, the, the one with the, the hardware yeah. um, authenticator thing, but the market does not seem to want it. Like people are, want to put in their password. Even worse, they want to l- click on the Facebook button and log in with Facebook. How can yeah. we kind of move slowly towards a less... Password-dependent world.
1: I think we've got to look at, at why passwords remain so popular. And, yeah, you make a good point. The, the market wants something. Um, people are very critical of passwords. I feel sorry for passwords. People are critical of it. And then I'll, I'll sort of say to them, because yeah, I constantly hear, oh, have you seen this thing? It's a password killer. It's going to kill passwords. You know, all you do is you have a QR code and you scan it with your phone then you enter the number or something. And I'll be like, all right, how many websites use that? Oh, none, but it's going to kill passwords. And I've been having this discussion for a decade plus. (laughs) And I I sort of say to people, what you're not recognising is that the thing that passwords do better than absolutely everything else in terms of authentication is that everyone knows how to use them. You know, my my mum in her 70s, is great with passwords. <laughs> I don't know if they're all the same one or whatever it is. But my point is that, you know, it's a little bit like knowledge-based authentication for identity verification. You know, like when your bank calls up and they're like, we just need to make sure you, you are who you say you are, what's your date of birth? And you're like, oh, geez. it's like all over social media and you know data breaches and things. But everyone knows how to relay their date of birth. And what I think we, we lose sight of a little bit in this industry is that uh, the human usability aspect is absolutely essential because as much as security is important, if you don't have anyone using your system, you don't make money, you go broke, you've got to find another job. It's a whole mess. So uh, they're really, really effective with humans. And, and then we've got to sort of say, okay, well, how can we, how can we still move in the direction where we recognise that passwords are fallible and they've got lots of problems, but we also recognise there's a certain way humans like to interact? Uh, logging on with a social account is one step in that direction insofar as I'd probably rather trust Facebook with my credentials than whatever authentication mechanism someone rolls themselves. Uh, you know, that that is probably still a better step forward. Okay, there's privacy issues and all the rest of it. But from a pure security perspective, you know, that's a step in the right direction. Uh, we, we're getting you know, things like I, I love the idea of U2F keys. I love the idea of, of 2FA, usually love the idea of 2FA in general, but... There's a usability barrier. U2F keys have a cost barrier. Yeah, these things do pose challenges. I, I think that as we start to progress and we're getting you know, more towards sort of um, pass keys and, and single authentication and all the rest of it, we, we, we're getting in that direction. But we've, had, we've been asking for the longest time, you know, like will we have more or less passwords in 10 years from now? And we're still going to have more passwords in 10 years from now than what we do today partly because the old ones will never die, <laughs> you know, they'll just stay there, yeah. and also partly because, again, it's it's easy. Everyone knows how to do it. So yeah. I think this is, this is actually a good place for discussion to go, like pragmatic security, like what is the right amount of security for your audience in order to run your business? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I guess everybody knows how to use passwords and everybody has a face. I wanted to ask you about biometrics because they are often an option for either just logging in or at least in a better case, I guess, 2FA, right? What do you think of that? Do you think this is going to be a mainstay of security or is it a phase, a technological phase? Like, what do you think?
1: i got, let me see what i got here. i got an iPhone here. I've got an iPad there. They're both Face ID. My PC's got a fingerprint reader. My laptop's got a fingerprint reader. Uh, you know, like everything here is is biometric. Now, this hasn't gotten rid of passwords, right? Like I still have passwords on all these. i got more passwords than I've ever had. But what it does is it gives me a mechanism of authenticating, which is uh, less friction and less at risk of someone else observing it. You know, I often have like... Um, uh, news crews and things like that will be in the office. And so I can just put my finger here and I log on and no one's seeing anything over my shoulder they can they can reuse. And then you get people say, well, you shouldn't use biometrics because if your password gets compromised, you change it. If your fingerprint gets compromised, you can't change it. Well, you can. It's not much fun, but you can change it. But also, and this is where we come back to pragmatism again as well. You know, you think about the the difference in the risks. If my son who's thirteen gets your password, he can immediately log on to any of your services, assuming it just needs a password. If my son gets the glass that you've been holding because it's got your fingerprint on it, good luck. You know, like what happens next? I think you need some sticky tape and like some acetone and then you get a saucepan and some gummy bears and you melt them down or something and and then you gotta get it right within the first number of goes or the thing locks mm-hmm. out and falls back to knowledge base or, or rather falls back to a password. So the, the the biometric thing doesn't replace passwords. It decreases our dependency. It gives us many other good ways of authenticating, uh, and it it is it is not the same risk as a password mm. in any way, shape, or form. I think they're a positive thing.
0: Yeah, I agree very much so. And I I've heard a couple of things like the the Chaos Computer Club in Germany. They were like taking pictures high-res pictures of german yeah. politicians the angela merkel thing right and then got their yeah. fingerprints from a reflection of a glass on the picture and then printed it out and yeah it, it was it was kind of a proof of concept more than anything else and it kind of shows you like the level of target that they're looking at with yeah. these high effort things but for most people a fingerprint is probably much safer than well let's talk about other alternatives like sms on mobile phones as a 2fa thing what do you think about that why is that still around
1: well, first of all, we've just got to be clear that two factors is always going to be better than one factor, no matter how it's done. If, if we assume that one factor is just a password, uh, if you have a password and something else, it is always better than just a password. Now, often I've seen people say, having two FA with SMS is worse than having no two FA at all. No, it's like you can't count. You know, that's your problem. <laughs> Literally two is greater than one. It is, it right. is better. Uh, now, very often, what they mean is is that if you have set your account up such that you can do account recovery via SMS alone, then that's mm-hmm. a problem. And yes, that is a problem, but that's not two FA. That's back to one FA, and it's a single factor which has various weaknesses in it. So, yeah, SMS works well in in so far as again my parents know how to SMS, but no problems at all with them receiving a text message. I uh, I would like. Them to use a soft token, like an Authy or something like that, because it's it is a more secure mechanism. But that is a barrier to entry. I've got to explain that. Not only do I need to explain that to them, but then when they roll their device in a year from now or something, I've got to help them migrate that. Otherwise, they get locked out of their account. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's fishable. So we'd rather U2F having a physical cryptographic key. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to have the key with you. You've got to buy the key. You know, like there's other barriers to it. And I, I think really that the, the best way to sum all of this up is. We have different mechanisms with different strengths and weaknesses. There is not one right solution, and you've got to look at your demographic and figure out what is what is the most appropriate thing to them. And it might be a combination of the offerings. Many services allow you to do a 2 or a favor, SMS, soft token, U2F. Yeah, you know, let your customers decide.
0: Yeah, obviously it depends on the customers. Right, if you sell to cybersecurity experts, you probably can have a pretty high expectation of their them wanting or even like needing a 2FA system that does not have this one-factor fallback situation that can easily kind of circumvent the the whole security paradigm. But if you sell to regular people, I think, yeah, you you have to give them options, which is the the great thing about services like what Okta offers or other authentication providers, right? You can set these things specifically on their platform for your business or whatever, and this is obviously not an advertisement for these services, but the, the idea that you don't have to build this And it's there for you to use. That's already so much better than having just like salted hashed emails and passwords in your database. I always think of like the moment you put this kind of information, particularly passwords into your database, you're just painting a gigantic target on your back or on your front, on your whole business, right? If if people see that you roll your own
1: even the the massive spate in the last so i want to say probably five years uh, of credential stuffing you know credential stuffing is a massive problem you know how how do you defend against an attacker who comes along with a whole bunch of legitimate email addresses and passwords right but they're from other data breaches and they're just blasting them at your system you know you, you can't you can't capture your way out of that <laughs> not reliably uh so that yeah this is why that we, we keep saying october again no affiliation but it's a well-known brand yeah, this is why those sorts of services are great because that—that's their problem.
0: No. Yeah. it's—it's also why you um, partnered with One Password, right? Like the the idea, like that. Have I been pwned? Partnered with One Password, which was, I guess, controversial. I remember a lot of Hacker News comments where people got really mad back in the day. But oh, you know, p- people always do on Hacker News. That's kind of their mo. Don't read so, the comments. <laughs> Honestly, I, I love the idea. And One Password has been a darling of the indie hacker scene, too, being bootstrapped to a certain yeah. point and only, like, raising much later. So I really enjoy the whole journey of that business and obviously also the product. But I think with your partnership with them, you you gave the, the password manager that was already a good idea to begin with for anybody this additional layer of... Kind of crowdsourced security, right? By by knowing what uh, leaks they were in, what kind of um, password or credential stuffing potential this yeah. each individual credential could have. I think that was great, and I wanted to talk to you about this partnership because, as I said, Hacker News didn't like it. Or well, what do they yeah. like? But how did that how did that feel uh, for you? Because earlier we were talking about having a trustworthy reputation as a provider. You going with 1Password, was that built on having a trust-built-based relationship with them over the years?
1: Yeah, so back in, oh, I don't know, 2011, something like that, I, I got a password manager because uh, I, I knew I needed to stop doing what we have all done <laughs> in the past. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked around at a few different options and I settled on 1Password <clears throat> And I wrote it up at the time. In fact, I wrote a blog post called The Only Secure Password is the One You Can't Remember, and it's it's been a very popular one since. And, um, you know, I just started using the password manager and, and getting all the, the value out of it, which we all know is there, you know, strong, unique passwords and everything, much easier to authenticate to websites, all the rest of it. And, you know, uh, over time we just ended up chatting because we're in a similar, you know, operating in a similar sort of space and then i catch up with people in person. And I'd travel for conferences And ended up just having, a, I guess, a friendly relationship with them. And, you know, when we speak about trust before we said, how do we establish trust? Well, for me, one of the ways I've established trust is getting to know people that are behind services. I know many people trust me to do Have I Been Pawn for the very same reason, because we spend time together and they go, oh, he's all right. (laughs) He seems to know what he's talking about. (laughs) So this is what was happening with one password. And then... I, uh, I launched the, the Pwn Passwords API so that you could take a password or rather a, a partial representation of a hash of a password with this cool anonymity model uh, and check whether or not it had previously been in a data breach. And I, I pushed this out. Uh, and next minute, like a couple of days later or something, it was built into 1Password. I was nice. like, wow, that was cool. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and they'd just gone out and done it in, a, you know, in the most indie sort of way, I guess. Uh, and it was a, just a super, super, super cool feature. And and things just kept, yeah, you know, rolling from there. Just people that that uh, that have a mutual respect for each other, and, and both build some cool products, and that's that's about that's it, so really.
0: Nice. That's such a cool story because it just shows the alignment that you both had, like you, both you and the company, uh, to be, just make more awareness happen in the community or in in the world at large about these things. That is wonderful. I that's what I thought. I, I was not one of the people criticizing it back then because I thought this is actually a really smart thing to do. Like, this is bringing together two things that I like, and why would I criticize it? But there were there was criticism at the time, right? Were people kind of afraid of it going commercial? Like, I mean, have I been pwned? Did they fear well, that to go away?
1: From memory, the, the, the primary criticism was, was people saying, you shouldn't just be recommending a single password manager. Mm. You should be saying, go and use a password manager and make it more generic. Now, to, to be clear, like, every time I do any media or press and I'm speaking to the masses, I... I do talk about using a password manager. I rarely right. say 1Password, in part because now I'm on the board of advisors so I do have a financial interest in their success so I don't want to conflate those two things. But the the, the point I made at, at the time is, a, and, and actually this relates to have a 1Password having product placement on have I been pwned as well, and I said, look, you know, the, the vast majority of people who come here and search for their data and find themselves breached are normal everyday people. If I just say go and get a password manager, good luck, They'll be like, oh, what? Uh, notepad? <laughs> you know, like, what, what do I do? Uh, and then then people say, well, you should just put a list of them. So, well, okay, well, now you've got the paradox of choice because you've got all these different password managers and you've got someone like my mum or dad in their 70s going, you know, go and choose one. Good luck. Yeah, I would much rather stand up and go, there is a product that, that I trust that I use personally. Uh, and yes, we now have a commercial relationship as well, but this is how we got there. This is the reasons I chose them. Go and use those ones. And and I, I think it's fair to say that 1Password is probably the most well-known, trustworthy password manager out there, maybe in part because of things like the relationship with Have I Been Pwned. But look, I, I I don't feel like I have to please everyone either. You know, if there's some people that are unhappy about it, well, don't listen to me. Yeah, go and do your own thing. But this is the way I've decided to run it.
0: Did any other password manager company reach out to you
1: or any project? Like beyond one password. Uh, I mean, there's a bunch of different password manager companies that say use Have I Been Pwned? That that use, uh, you know things like pwned passwords. And and I, yeah, you know, I always talk to them. It's you know, I'm not here trying to, like, only make one password work and everything else fail. It it's a bit of a rising tide situation where the the more information we get in front of people about things like compromised passwords, the better everyone is. Uh, and I don't care which product they get that through.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, that makes sense. obviously the the goal is to educate right the the goal is not to pick and choose Mm. the goal is to gonna provide the surface there one one thing one i wouldn't call it the gripe but one little issue that i always had with password managers that have this kind of cloud subscription level was what is now being reflected in the whole crypto community with not your keys, not your coins, right? That's the statement that people make when you look at FTX and these weird things where exchanges just fall apart and you lose all your fancy coins that were essentially just like somewhere in their database and and not um, in your wallet. How would you respond to this in terms of like password managers that are cloud based and and cloud, uh, I guess the the center of truth, like the, the point of truth is in the cloud. Um, well, how does that translate to you?
1: I get the argument insofar as what's happened with crypto, but do you want to extend that to your bank account as well? Like, if the money is not in your house and it's on someone mm. else's mm. servers, it's not yours. So, how far do you, you drive that one down? I think yeah. you've got to look at. First of all, you have many choices with the password manager. You have password managers that you can run locally. That you have open source ones, closed source ones, commercial ones, freeware, Like, whatever you want, so you can choose what works for you. I believe that one password's approach is is the best one for the vast bulk of the population, me included, for several reasons. You know, number one, I want to synchronise across my devices. I just sort of got four different devices right here, and I log on to stuff from all of them. Now, when I first started using one password, they went, "You have your own keychain. You keep it. It's yours. You just need to synchronise it somehow. For example, via Dropbox, which was the way I did it originally." Yep. Okay, well, now I'm kind of dependent on Dropbox. You know, my, my right. keys are in there. Uh, and then over time, they moved to a subscription model for, for I, I think, a couple of different reasons. And I'm not speaking on their behalf here. This is my observation as an industry observer. But, yeah, part of it is it does make the process of synchronization that much easier. And synchronization is, is genuinely really important because all of us, certainly all of us, listen to this, have multiple devices, and we need to be able to authenticate, retrieve our secrets and whatever else. So... Regardless of your password manager of choice, you need to find some way to keep things in sync. And then from the subscription basis, you know I use a lot of subscription services myself. I've got everything from Adobe Creative Cloud through to all sorts of third-party software products that, you know, the likes we've just been talking about. And I genuinely like paying much smaller amounts on a regular basis than remember when we used to go out and buy like Microsoft Office, and you get it on a CD if you go back far enough <laughs> on a floppy disk and it'd be in a box and sit on the shelf and years would pass and you're still using the same product that gets no love. You know, I like the idea of products that are self-healing, that do update themselves, that are as service-orientated as possible. And particularly the discussions we just had about you know, how do we delegate away things that, that you really don't want to be your responsibility. Well, using a service as opposed to a software product does that. Now, look, if if you're a demographic that really feels that you're going to be massively targeted and, and all the rest of it, well, then maybe, maybe use something different. But, you know, even then, it's 1Password's got a massive bug bounty. They've got a lot of uh, publicly accessible uh, audit reports. I mean, if you're really that worried about it, go through and look at it all. I, I, I struggle to find examples where there's more than the tiniest, tiniest slice of people for whom this isn't a good solution.
0: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And you make it obviously a persuasive argument, like particularly with the self healing and just <laughs> expanding qualities, right? If there are new problems, they can integrate it faster. And synchronization, obviously, too. Here's another one coming like from the, the indie hacking sphere, because as somebody who went through a business acquisition, a software as a service business acquisition, we had to hand over all our credentials. Like right? that was part of the deal. In fact, mm. that was actually most of the deal, was just giving people <laughs> our keys to a one password vault. And that was the whole transition because they had everything in there. Our SOPs were in there. All the process documentation was in there. Links to Google Drive, links to whatnot were secure notes. Like you can literally run your business, at least uh, the legal parts of it, in a password vault and just hand that over in one fell swoop and that that is it so not doing this would have required us to send over massive emails with clear text passwords that kind of stuff didn't happen because we had the vault so that is another yeah. really good reason to build your business at least on a password manager
1: yeah 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 i, I think that's that's an important and if you think about it in a broader capacity it's, it's not just passwords it's like secrets management there's probably lots of things that you have that that you would consider secrets um yeah, certainly, in, in, for me, between myself, my wife and my kids as well, like we have documents that are secrets. You know, We have credit cards and passport details that are secrets. In an organization, you might have keys that are secrets or other processes and things that are secrets. And if you look at it at a more macro level, uh, yeah, where are you going to store that?
0: Yeah, secrets, man. I'm, I'm just thinking about the latest tweets by Elon Musk where he walks through the office and takes pictures of people's screens yeah. exposing host names and user
1: usernames man that is these are secrets that should be managed as well, right? Well, I always wonder when you see pictures of like that and and you know I'm very conscious as well if I take pictures of something and then I put it out there uh what is actually in the pictures uh, and there are certainly times where I take pictures and I deliberately put things in there that're a bit obscure that I want people to try and look at just to sort of see what happens <laughs> i I wonder with you just never know with him, right like is he playing at multiple levels above us or is he just as he just screwed up <laughs> yeah the the 4d
0: chess uh theory right yeah you, you don't yeah, know yeah, yeah. Yeah. you don't know well i i certainly hope that he's not actually exposing twitter secrets to the world as as few as there may be but a host name can be your gateway into a whole architecture right you don't don't want your infrastructure compromised by just like one photo
1: yeah Oh, then there is a valid question around how secret should something like a host name be. But yeah, anyway, yep. there's another rabbit hole. Yeah, I guess. Well, I'm I'm super grateful
0: that we went through all the rabbit holes that we went through today in, in terms of security advice. I'm uh, very thankful for you showing up and being on my podcast today. If pe- If you want people to connect with you and find out more about you and your work, where would you like people to go?
1: Oh, I mean, Troyhunt.com is easy. Uh, whilst it's still there, Twitter, uh, Troy Hunt on Twitter. <laughs> 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 Don't screw it up, Elon. Come on. Uh, uh, so, yeah, look, I'm still in most places.
0: Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, that was really insightful, and I hope people will be more secure in the future and build businesses that are secure and secure their customers' credentials as well. So thanks for being on today. Cool. My pleasure. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The bootser Founder. You can find me on Twitter at avidkal, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there as well. If you want to support me in the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in the podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com founder. Any of this will help the show. So thank you very much for
1: listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.